Hello, my name is Corey Durbin, and you have found Running Eyes. In this podcast, we will take a deep dive into the relationships, strategies, and global mission of Alliance for Shared Health to change healthcare and change lives. Sometimes, we will travel on parallel paths with others who have dared to journey through the challenges of life in pursuit of a purpose bigger than self. As we travel these roads together, I believe you will find encouragement from either their connection to Ash or their resolve for the commitment and strength it takes to vigilantly pursue their passions. Welcome to Running Eyes. Well, today I am with Mike Hentis, president of Alliance for Shared Health and also Pat Bradley, the founder of Crisis Aid International and the liaison to uh, Bible Army International Church, who is Ash's uh, predecessor, 1999 predecessor. And gentlemen, it is great to be with you. How are you both doing? Awesome. Great day. Great to be here with you as well, Corey. Yeah, this is exciting. I I know um, we've had opportunity to catch up both with both of you individually, and, uh, you know, a lot has happened since... The board of Ash went over to Ethiopia. I think we were the last trip, Pat, that you were able to take over to Ethiopia prior to COVID. And you recently got to get back over there. Is that correct? That is correct. We left uh, together. We were there in February February of 2020. And I just returned back there in February of 2021. So the longest stretch I've never been that I had that not being in Ethiopia. Normally you go about six times a year. Don't yes. Like that. Uh-huh. So what was that like for you to have to go that long? <laughs> kind of felt like having withdrawals at times because it's like now I'm stuck at my office at a desk. And so, but it, it actually worked out good because we really ramped up a feeding program here in St. Louis, a food distribution. Um, we went from uh, 400 a month to 4,000 a month. So that kept me busy for a while. But, uh, you know, you got, like the people there, like, you, you met them. They're like family. And so you kind of miss them a lot. And also wondering what's going on and how are people doing. And I'm just missing a lot. Well, that's probably where my mind went first was to what it was like to see some of the girls again that you all have rescued, that your team has worked with. Because Mike and I talked about it, how it was clear that they saw you and Sue as father, father and mother figures over there. And so what was that reunion? It was like seeing your long lost daughter. I mean, it was a year since we'd seen the girls and it had never been that long of a time period. And so it was a great reunion. And, uh, but there were some of them, like we had several homes. So a couple of the homes, the girls couldn't come see me because they had a couple of positive COVID. They were fine, but they were positive, And so, mm-hmm. They were kind of locked down. I know you communicate with Mike fairly often. Uh, you've gotten a few updates. Anything struck you? Because I want to hear more from Pat about what's new over there, but anything recent? I know you've shared a little bit with, with some of the members or through some of the newsletters. Anything stick out for you? Just the continued help. Um, it's, it's, uh, I haven't heard of too, many things, uh, too much new, but just the, the ongoing help through the pediatric hospital and what we're able to, to do there to provide uh, that medical need for, for the mothers and, and the young children over there that are suffering from malnutrition. Um, it's, it's a lot of the same, but it's all very impactful. Um, every report that we get from Pat of what we're able to do over there through our members' contributions. So, um, again, nothing new, but just a, a, 
a whole lot of the same, but that that's what we're doing over there is amazing. Mm-hmm. And we really appreciate Pat, you know, making that connection and, and helping us facilitate that work over there. I recall at least I think it was in the last newsletter where you did share a picture and those unfortunately are fairly normal and that's just so striking when you see what the, the transformation that happens in a, in a child that probably, I really, not probably, wasn't going to make it until. Yeah, with that last picture, it reminds me of our trip over there. Um, and, and it still strikes me that the young, uh, the young toddler that, that I came across when we visited that pediatric hospital. Um, after that, I learned his name was Joseph, um, like Joseph, but starts with a Y. And uh, he's actually a, a picture of him is, is my screensaver now on my phone because oh, it fuels cool. me every day. And he represents all the kids over there that were helping. Um, but it, it, whenever I met him and, and he reached out and grabbed my finger, it just it struck me. And God was saying, this is your child, too. Even though he lives halfway around the world, this is your child. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was just a very powerful moment and it continues to fuel me to this day. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so transitioning from the what's, what we see as sort of normal every day, the reports that you share with our team through Mike. And my question to you is, what was new, what was different for you, when Pat, when you got over there? Oh, I, it was shocking, frankly, to see the growth that took place in almost all of our programs. Um, very organic growth. Um, for instance, the pediatric clinic hospital. We had mothers walking six, seven hours to bring their child there to get just to get the examination. If they weren't going to be admitted, then they had to walk you know, that far back home. So we opened up a health outpost some miles away from the clinic. So now the women are walking a much shorter distance we have doctors and nurses staffing it five days a week, and we're able to treat the children there, and then the ones that are really serious, they come to the clinic. That is probably quite, not double the amount of patients that we get to see now on a monthly basis. Um, and that development was huge there because there's no medical care. And imagine walking with two small kids and carrying a baby for six or seven hours, and then have the no access to anything and you know you examine them you do what you can and think about what that mother must go through well now with that help outpost she doesn't have to do that she maybe walked a couple hours which sounds like a lot but when you compare to what they had it's huge and the people there we've seen another thing i noticed was that um since we changed the grain blend combination the people in the programs and you can see it with the mothers at the that are staying with their children you just see an overall uh, uh, improvement in their just general appearance. You know, they just look healthier. Tell us about the change in the grain. You know, you've, you've shared with us before, but what change that is impacting the nutrition, I think, in a positive way. Yeah. So what we did for years, we gave out wheat flour, and that was a supplemental food program we did. And it's, and it's pretty standard global type of a program. But two years ago, we had a food scientist come over and examine our program and see what we were doing and he suggested if we use corn wheat and chickpea that we could take i'm gonna get the numbers not correct but say a protein level content of five per serving blending those three would take it to up to 20. 
So wow. we're getting a whole lot more protein, but even more important is we're like quadrupling the micronutrient content. And that's the big thing when you're dealing with severely malnourished children is you need to get them protein, but the micronutrients are really, really important. That, that sounds like such a game changer from just the standpoint of uh, sustainability and uh, eliminating something, some, getting something in your body that actually lasts longer. Mm-hmm. And I remember visiting the hut. Mike, you remember the story of or sitting around the hut and got the small a plot of land and had a few coffee plants, but false banana trees. Right. And so they're eating... But yeah, the, I had never heard of false bananas before. We went over there, but um, these bananas that uh, a lot of people were eating, probably because it made their belly full, had no nutritional value whatsoever. So it's like eating water. So while their belly, bellies might have got a little full, they weren't getting any nutrition from from them. But that's all they had. So that's what they were eating, and maybe didn't even realize that they weren't getting any nutrition. From those false bananas. Yeah, and it takes seven years. So when you plant the first tree, it takes seven years to harvest the roots. So it's like a one-time thing. So with the new, with the change in the grain, change in cost or how? Yeah. So grain costs have over the last number of years have skyrocketed on us, and so by using this blend, not only nutritionally does it help us, but it helps us keep our cost per family down. And so, and on top of that, we also. open a food processing plant now where we actually buy the grains direct, we grind them, blend them, and then that's what we use to distribute that. And the uh, thing that really excited me most about that was that the employees that work in that are, the, are mothers who've lost a child to malnutrition. So they're now gainfully employed and are able to support their families. That mill is near the pediatric hospital. Yep. And you can basically, you can throw a rock and hit it. And I know in the beginning, the pediatric hospital had some trouble with the electricity and power. Mm-hmm. Um, any problems uh, with, on the mill uh, with the power? Yeah, that's a problem. The government, we've got a transformer, um, but we're waiting for the government to come hook it up. We've been waiting like a year. So last fall, we uh, we we, had, we bought a big generator and put a big solar system in. So now the clinic, the hospital is being run at night the solar power. But once the government hooks the power up, then we'll have more power than we need. So you've got this we've got this property that is not just sharing in medical needs and, and helping what is probably a, really an overwhelming problem when you when once you're on the ground, you're like people are walking six, seven miles and with no guarantee of being treated. And then on the same grounds now you've got the dairy. Mm-hmm. And you've got what you've called a restaurant, and so it's it's almost like you're not just buying somebody a fish or feeding somebody a fish, but you're teaching them how to fish as well. Is that a accurate way to? That is an accurate way, and we're also showing them what's possible because we want the people to be able to think. For instance, when we first started working there, like opportunities didn't exist. And so they did not understand what an opportunity was. And this sounds terrible. We in America, we can't understand the concept at all. But an opportunity you could hit them, they would never know it. Mm. So what we did was go, we went there. Instead of trying to teach them, we just showed what we were doing. I mean, the people just picked it up. And it's been amazing to see the transformation that's happening there. It truly is going to be a major shift in, 
in that section of the country. There are so many things that we take for granted, and I, we can go to the doctor fairly easily here, and we can wait in a waiting room a half hour or 45 minutes and be beyond frustrated, right? <laughs> and you've got ladies, families, mothers, fathers that walk their sick child for miles and miles, and oftentimes they start, you don't have enough staff, right, to necessarily see them that day, and so do they wait? Do they, do they walk home? Depends on the condition of the child. If the child needs to be admitted, and we know we have some children coming out within a day or two, we'll try to keep them there somehow. But if not, then we have to let them send them back. Like when we were over there, the, the pediatric hospital that we visited, there was a, a line outside the door, I don't know how long, at like 5 in the morning, because they they get in line early because mm-hmm. they know mm-hmm. they have to to be able to be seen that day. And the staff goes out about 7 a.m. and they triage and they take, I think it's about 100 to 125. That we know we can at least see that many. The rest would say come back tomorrow. That's about 100, 100, 125 a day. And is that a number that you said has doubled with the outpost, the number of people that you're, you're treating, seeing every day? Yes. Yeah. And, and is the 125 included in, yeah. in that number? So we're just... We will be getting numbers in in the next couple of, probably next month, about the effects of what happened with because of the health outpost. No. Conversations with our team over there. The hospital has two wings, I recall, and is one open right now and working on the other? or No, it's fully open, and so we are planning to put another building behind it. Oh, wow. We, it's not going to be the same design, but it's going to be basically the same square footage. So we'll, double, we'll increase, hopefully double our capacity of beds. But we also want to bring in services like, um, I have a dream of bringing in a digital x-ray machine because there's none there. And what we could do with that would be amazing and also put a neonatal unit in there. What's, we'll that what keeps the dream from becoming a reality? Oh, time and funding, frankly. I mean, it just costs money to do this stuff. And, How much is a machine? Oh, an X-ray machine is probably about one hundred and ten to one hundred twenty thousand dollars. There, by the time you get it, you have to have uh, technicians, you know, bring it down and hook it up and train and all of that. And how does that change the game? Oh, <laughs> lets the doctor see what he he thinks he sees. You know, it does a lot of kind confirmations. Mm-hmm. And there's just nothing like that in that southern in the whole southern part of the country. That would be revolutionary. Well, Mike, as we hear. And know, you know, we learn more, we see so much of what's going on over there just from our visit, but what Pat shares with you. Uh, I am privy to some of the challenges that Ash faces from a regulatory perspective, and I think health share ministries in general, and even sometimes the challenge that comes from states saying uh, BAIC isn't doing medical sharing over in, in Ethiopia. Uh, how does Knowing what's going on over there drive you every day with uh, kind of directing the ship with Ash. It's uh, <clears throat> reminding myself of what's going on over there is is, mon- is monumental. It's it's what it's what drives me. Get to, like you said, we come under some uh, regulatory uh, questions that we're not sharing in medical needs, but feeding somebody is the most basic form. Um, medical need. It, it, we don't need any medicine until we 
going to take care of that nutrition problem that is going to surely lead this child to to death within a couple weeks if we don't feed him so or her. So being over there and seeing it and hearing more and more what Pat does, it really, to be honest, there's some days that we, we, we face this scrutiny uh, in the health show world that sometimes, like we talked about earlier, Pat, you just, sometimes you just want to give up, but you, you can't when you know the impact that we're having and, and the lives that we're not changing, but the lives that we're saving. Um, so it fuels me on a daily basis and uh, continues to drive us forward to where we want to continue our mission um, because we we want to be able to grow to where we can provide that X-ray machine for you. We want to we want to continue to grow so we can build another pediatric hospital or expand that one even further because the need is so great. And as we talked about earlier, you know the need is great, and, and yeah. You, we can never meet it, but if we continually grow um, over time, start getting those the, the seismic shifts in what you can do in, in changing the culture, changing perception um, that there is hope. You know that's what it comes down to is giving them hope. You know, better days are ahead. So, so yeah, it, you know, I understand the, the regulatory uh, issues, and, and they want to protect their constituents of their states. Are our mission is the same. We want to make sure our members are taken care of. Uh, we want to make sure our mission is able to continue. So, so while, while we understand the regulatory issues, it still does you know, leave us frustrated sometimes too. Mm-hmm. But knowing what the impact we're having keeps us going for sure. How about you, Pat? What what keeps you going? Because because things haven't things aren't always easy. Especially you've got a, really have have an incredible team over there and. You go, sometimes you go out, you take a step out before you really know how a problem is going to get solved or what resources are going to become available. And uh, there are days that some days are are better than others, right? So what's the thing that has propelled you to keep doing this, which is you're coming up on 19 years or or so? 19 years, yes. Next year will be 20, yeah. 19 and a half years right now. Um... I guess for me, it's like giving up is not an option. And I've kind of always had that mental attitude. It's like, like you said, Mike, you know, remembering what the mothers look like. I mean, the babies are one thing. The children are one thing. But when you look in a mom's eyes, and that mother knows that child's going to die, and she can't do anything about it. I mean, that just, like, the desperation in her eyes. And, you know, she, if she sticks a baby in your hands and you hold it and you see that, it's like, how can you stop? How can we quit? You know, and God has been so faithful for us. To us. I mean, we started with a five-room lean-to plan, just a temporary thing to try to bring some assistance. And look what's happened. This is going to is a hospital. It's going to be double in capacity. The food production is there. So it's just giving up is not an option. And you know, the other thing is too is a, like I really believe being a Christian is a great adventure. And so I don't want to miss out on the adventure. Yeah, I have days where I'm like, I'm going to just throw it all away. But then we got staff to deal with those things that I don't I could delegate, you know. I tell you what, when we were over there, Pat, it was uh, inspirational. Every morning, waking up and coming outside, I would almost every day hear you say, looking up, God, why are you so good to me? Why do you allow me to do this? This is the best day of my life. 
And that attitude definitely comes from your faith in God. And uh, I'm sure that that is, again, the, the main source of your inspiration. Of when we look at that mother, God's love is pouring right through you to her. Mm-hmm. And why do you want to stop being that vessel? Because that's a, that's a pretty awesome calling. It is a privilege. I mean, it truly is a priv- privilege to do what we do. It really is. And yet, the, the st- everybody has a story. Uh, I, I like to dig into the stories a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so yours is, you know, n- isn't a story of this easy Christianity walk, always, you know, always doing what you quote unquote should be doing. Uh, would you share a little about where you were before you st- you got where you before you founded Crisis Aid? Mm-hmm. Sure. We um, going way back. I was married to my wife now. Actually, my wife is my second wife. She just happens to be the same lady. We were actually divorced and remarried. Um, but prior to giving my life to Christ, I was an alcoholic. I'm just a drunk, um, a functioning drunk, as she called it, because I didn't lose my job, but a drunk nonetheless. And she had uh, make a long story really short. She just got fed up with it and kicked me out and divorced me. Um, and that caused me to see myself that you know, maybe I do have a problem with drinking. Mm-hmm. And that led me to AA, which led me to uh, sobriety. And after about a year and a half, um, we ran into each other through a work engagement. And um, it was just, just like something happened to us. And So you hadn't seen her? You, you were... uh, the only time I saw her was when I picked up the kids and dropped them off. Okay. Outside of that, I didn't want anything to do with her. And so I ran into her at her office. I was actually there to talk to her boss. Um, and, you know, I looked at her and I'm like, hey, she looks pretty good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I met with her boss and she escorted me out and we had a nice little conversation. So we agreed to meet for coffee. And six months later, we got remarried. Wow. But um, about a week after that first meeting at her employment, is I went to church and and that's where I heard the gospel, truly heard the gospel. Like I'd never heard it before. I was born and raised as a Catholic. When I was 16, my parents gave up trying to keep me in church, and they said, you do whatever you want, because I was doing it anyway. And so <laughs> I finally heard the gospel the way it was supposed to be intended, and I gave my life to Christ, and God restored our marriage. Well, you know, I hang out with you and Mike a little bit because it, it makes me look nicer, right? Because you guys are... Everyone said, you know, up until they meet you, they say Mike's the nicest guy they've ever met. And so, and you guys, uh, all kidding aside, you're, you're wonderfully generous and gifted people. And there's points in our lives that we get, we hit a bottom too. And uh, getting to that spot uh, is a little bit of make or break it, right? Mm-hmm. And here you are. Having gone through that, and I mean, Sue deals with, she, she's an incredible lady, and she deals with her own challenges. I don't know if you want to mention that or not, or you want to stay away from that. But. Uh, I mean, she's just, she deals with chronic pain, pretty severe chronic pain on a daily basis, and it's been 12, 13 years now, and, but she's a fighter. I mean, she doesn't give up. I live with her, and I just, some days, I don't know how she does this. I don't think I could, especially if I can, like pull a muscle in my leg or something. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> even through that, she's traveled with she tra- Ethiopia oh, yes. and 
She she doesn't like to miss those those trips either. No, we like to see our girls. Mm-hmm. So uh, BAIC, um, the pastors over there, how are Tommy and Joy doing, and are they enjoying seeing all of this? Uh, and and how and maybe the first question is how has COVID impacted or hindered the development of things and projects over there? Um, first of all, they're doing really well. And uh, Tommy just wrote another book that was being edited. It was actually it was being edited when I was there in February. Um, I don't know what it was about. I actually forgot. But uh, Joy's doing real well. COVID had not really slowed much anything down. There was a period of time, several months, where they couldn't have gatherings. Like Mercy Chapel had to close. And churches were actually shut down, but they're back open now. And um, so I think that they're pretty much running, you know, their church is still growing and they're trying to spread more. We actually talked to them about the northwestern part of the country when I was there, uh, going to an exploratory trip there. Um, it, how is the uh, the safe haven in uh, in the villages coming along? With in, in Alata? Yeah. Um, well, like I shared with you earlier this morning, we were doing good until the front wall collapsed. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, not that, not that building, the new building that's being developed. Oh, the, uh, the one for 100 girls. Yeah. Okay, so that one is, we are just finished the um, commerce building. We finished all the pillars in the foundation and then the basement walls were being put up. And so the plan is... By the end of November, the goal is to have the ground floor open and ready for rental income, and then have the girls' home open. We need to put water, electricity, and a transformer there. So once we get that, then our plan is to start with just 10 or 20 girls, put them in there, and just start learning as we go and figure out where the you know, mistakes we're going to make. I'm undoubtedly make mistakes, so we'll make them smaller than big girls. So domestically, Crisis Aid, your organization is involved heavily in uh, trafficking relief, mm-hmm. and uh, you've shared some some pretty um, unnerving numbers of what's going on just in the the Midwest here and in, in St. Louis in particular. Uh, what what's the latest with what your activity is here and some of the th- things that you can share? as it relates to trafficking issues in, in St. Louis and in our, in our region? So right now we have our home houses eight girls, so we have seven girls, right, and they're all minors. Um, so the home, it's doing good, but 18 months ago we began a new pilot program with the St. Louis County Police Detective Bureau, and the goal was to move into a position to where we can actually prevent girls from becoming victims of traffickers. And so by working with the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force in the state of Missouri, working with St. Louis County Police and their Sex Crimes Unit and also their uh, uh, Child Abuse Department or Section, uh, we developed this advocate program to where we now have an office present full-time uh, person in the Detective Bureau right next to where the Sex Crime Unit is. So when these police officers come across these cases with these girls out um, displaying very risky behavior is what they look for, or we they troll and, and look at the sites. There's not a lot I can really go into how they find them, um, but when they find them and, and they bring them in, we typically the first ones that they talk to. And the reason is 
you've got a girl who is either in traffic maybe or sexually abused or or and she comes into a, a cold sterile police department and she's immediately intimidated and these girls are young you know like the so we have a room set up where they walk in and it's very homey and it's painted well and it's teddy bears and couches and very comfortable um, and then we provide, I'll say, a mentorship type of a program for the girl. But not only the girl, it allows us to get the entire family involved. And that's where we see the, the success rate go much higher because now the family is part of the solution, not just us and that girl in the home. What happens now is um, the police told us, based on their numbers, that over this 18-month period that we have prevented, when I say we, I'm saying the police department in partnership with Crisis Aid together we've prevented 390 girls from becoming victims of sex traffickers or falling into further sexual abuse. This is quantifiable data that we keep data sets on, and it's something that I, as the founder of Crisis Aid, I've always wanted to move into the prevention side, but unless we could have some measurements so we know we're being successful and how we report to people and what we say, there was just been nothing until this thing came about. So now based on that success, um, we're planning to expand that work greatly, significantly and potentially to nationwide. It, it, it's it, it, Being in the human trafficking field for, since 2006, this is a game changer, a major game changer that we have here. I mean, there's nothing like it in the nation. Uh, we've done our research trying to find something like this. There's a part of us, I think, that doesn't want our mind to go there. It's staggering to think that that's even that that, that even exists in our world today, uh, and to think that you're talking about preventing 390 young girls, um, kids from being trafficked, from being abused, just in the St. Louis area alone. We're talking about. I think you're talking about St. Louis County. That doesn't include surrounding counties, and. Uh, What's what's going on in our world? Number one, that this is happening, and number two, that we go around, we we walk and we live every day in a state where we just ignore this. And one of the things, certainly, that I think Mike and I both appreciate about you and your organization is you say we can't walk away. I think you've said this before: doing nothing isn't an option. And didn't you tell us before even the term human trafficking is? a relatively new term. Sex trafficking. Sex trafficking. Right. And you know, one thing I did want to share, the average age of the girls that we serve, that we work with is 12. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah. I, you know, and we we have a presentation and every time I hear it, it's, I, get, I get angry. You know, I've got, I've got grandkids and I think about my grandkids. What our team presents in this presentation is absolutely alarming. I've seen grown men start crying at this thing. And it's hard, but you know what? If you've got to hear this, you have to see what's happening. These, these, I mean, they're getting to our kids through the games now, like Minecraft. I don't know how they do it. I'm not that smart, but that's how they're getting to these kids. And they know how to find them. And if you'd be interested, we would, I'd be happy to have Cindy come up and do that presentation. It's It's an amazing thing. I mean, Mike and I both have two daughters. Mike has four kids, and I can't. It's it's incredibly challenging to navigate the social media world with our kids. Our, our parents didn't have to deal with that. They have their own set of challenges, of course. We all do. 
And we sometimes are disconnected from our children because we there it's a double-edged sword. Um, it's our catch-22 or whatever you want to call it. And you know that your children need to be aware and know how to use all of the technology. And then you also like, what's what kind of damage is this causing? And you're bringing up a facet that, I, I, again, I, I hate that I, I don't want to go there mentally. You know? Yeah, it hits pretty close to home when you say the, the mean average age is 12. And I think I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old. And that's right where they're at. And I, I just, yeah, all sorts of emotions stir up when you think about something like that happening to somebody that you love like that. So that's uh, where I think we don't want our minds to go there because it's hard to even hard to even think about. But we have to. We have to because our kids are there. Yeah. So crisis aid, uh, you know, is the liaison, of course, or asked to BAIC, and I know, I believe that initially you ended up in Ethiopia on, started kind of in the feeding world, or right? like hunger support, nutritional support, and then it wasn't very long, maybe, I want to say 2011, if I remember right, that you got uh, into the uh, trafficking relief efforts there, did, which came first, St. Louis and the work you do here? With the trafficking relief, or over there, would you would you remind us of how that, that came to be? Yeah, that started actually in December of two thousand six when we rescued our first oh, six. from the red light district. Twelve twenty eleven or twenty twelve was only open a home here in the Gotcha. Okay, thank you. Yeah. So I was standing on the corner. Uh, a board member and I were talking to a guy that had a ministry to street kids, and I just heard his voice say, "Ask him about prostitution." You literally told I told him, "Look who said that." Hmm. I knew it was God. I just knew that I knew. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I got a question. Tell me about prostitution. What do you know? And so he starts explaining this big red light district and how horrible it was. And then there's thousands of girls. And This is in Ethiopia. This is in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, okay, can you take us there tonight? And he said, okay. So that night we went in this red light district and um, they told us we were probably the only white people that had ever been in there. I believe it. It's so desolate. It's so you guys saw it. You know, it's it's horrible. It's it's what the world would look like without God. That's how I heard mm. my man describe it. But we were talking to a group of girls, and um, one thing led to another, and so we told them that God had a better plan for their life, and and would do they want to hear more about it? And I said sure, and so we went inside one of their rooms, and um, long story short, we they all gave their life to Christ that night. And, but one girl just really stood out, just really stood out. And um, I heard this voice again say, baptize her. I'm like, baptize her? I don't, how, I don't, I've never baptized anybody. I don't know what to do. I don't, besides, there's no running water. But I just felt that impression that we needed to baptize her. So we sent somebody out with a pan, and they went and found some water, and we walked outside and came up with the water in the pan. And we're standing in the middle of this red light district, and all these people are you know, get, kind of getting a crowd around you. And I told her, I said, now, just bend over and we're going to baptize you. And, you know, so I poured the water over her head and said the appropriate things or what I thought was appropriate. And I just remember saying, I baptize you in the, in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how we ended it. Mm -hmm. And when she stood up, I mean, the water's dripping down her face and her hair. She had this smile. 
radiant smile that lit up. It looked like it lit up the whole alley. Mm. And it was a visible change. Visible. In fact, the guy that was with me, had him, he had a board meeting this week. His name is Dane. I said, Dane, you remember the night with Yoda after she baptized? What did you remember about that? He goes, Patty goes, when she stood up and smiled, it was like the sunshine. Mm. I got goosebumps right now, telling us. And so I looked at her, she looked at me, and I said, you want to leave? And I didn't, that just came out of my mouth. <laughs> and everybody stood back and was like looking at me, going, what are you doing? What are you? I'm like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but do you want to go? She said, yes, I want to leave. I said, well, is it safe for you? Can you go tonight? And these guys, he's like, they're all over there going, no, what are you talking about leaving tonight? Nobody thought about this. We didn't talk about this. I'm like, but God was there when he wants her out. So I said, go get your stuff if it's safe. She said, yeah, my And then she said, my owner is not here tonight. Mm. So she thought of herself as being owned by a pimp. Mm. Anyway, she came back about 10 minutes later with like a Walmart shopping bag with all her earthly possessions. And we learned that she was 16 years old. Didn't have any family. She was there for five years. So she was there since 11 years old. And when she walked out, I mean, she was beaming. And so we got about halfway back to our vehicle and the thought hit my mind. What are we going to do with her? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how we began to work with sex trafficking rescue. I remember as we drove toward the red light district uh, last February, uh, I think as, pretty much as we got to that point, you said, welcome to, welcome to hell, guys. Welcome to the gates of hell. That's what it felt like driving through there. And these, it, it's, a, it's a bunch of essentially tin shacks, not a bunch. It's hundreds and hundreds of 10 by 10, 10 by 15 tin shacks with a bed in them and no running water, right? I mean, and these... Four girls standing outside waiting, uh, and I think the way you described it is waiting to be somebody's toilet, uh, and it's it's mind numbing, and so the works for us. It, it it's beyond important because one life changed is. I mean, can you can you can you put a value on that? Really, I, I don't I don't think you can. I don't think it's. Like the, the MasterCard commercials, priceless, right? Heard a uh, just recently heard an analogy of, of a penny, and some are shiny and new, and some have had a tough life and are black, and you can barely tell it's a penny. But the value is the same, uh, and that's what we are as humans. We all have the same value. Some of them a little bit more scuffed up than others. So, what's next for you all, my Pat? With crisis aid over there and with BAIC, what's the what are you working on and what are some of the things that are standing in the way of of where you would like to see uh, change happen over there? Some of the things we're working on is to expand the work uh, in in the trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking field in, into the city of Alata where the pediatric hospital and all that is to expand that work there. Um, also, to once we get power, you know, proper power to the food production facility to be able to ramp that thing up a lot to a point where we we're actually producing food products that we could actually sell into the marketplace and create sustainable jobs and income and 
in revenue to help pay operating costs of other programs. Um, so we're looking at those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, and also with BAIC, we're also looking at the whole spiritual side of, of what's happening there. How can we, because the churches right now, we're using the churches to be like the pastors in the local churches are the ones that go out and find the kids and tell them to come in. So we're, we've got a training program devised for them, which will probably happen later this year. Um, the other thing is we're going to like, we want to double the size of the dairy because we, I mean, we're just, we went from 20 cows to 51 cows and we're selling 100% of our milk every single day. And it's turning, like the profits from the dairy bought the equipment for the food production facility. So it's happening. The dream is starting to happen. Um, and then here in St. Louis, that program I was just explaining about with the prevention side, we literally see that going nationwide in the, in the coming time period. I mean, it could happen relatively quickly uh, because it's so needed and it's so impactful uh, to actually prevent these girls from becoming victims. The, to double the dairy, is that mean? does that mean doubling the number of cows? Does it mean... More barns, yeah, and, and it, all that. Yeah, it means double. We have to buy some more land, and which the land behind the dairy now, it's what our plans are: is to purchase that land, we'll put up another barn, and then get more cows. And what, how many U.S. dollars does it take to buy the land? And the land is about say fifty thousand dollars. The barns about seventy thousand U.S. dollars to build. And how much is a cow? Mm, depends when you get them, but somewhere between two thousand and twenty five hundred. U.S. Uh, U.S. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. And I ask in U.S., Mike, because you you know, and you've you've talked about it before. The value of the dollar over there is thirty three times or right. So. Yeah, one dollar, one U.S. dollar over there has a thirty three dollar exchange rate. So it's now about thirty five, thirty six, thirty five now. It well, fluctuates. Yeah, yeah. At one point, it was up to forty. Yeah. <laughs> so the one dollar uh, of our members' contributions that go that goes over there. Fund uh, our, our medical mission through the pediatric hospital has an exponential effect. And, and how much of what the, what that impact is drives the mission and the goal for Ash to continue to, to grow for you, Mike? Oh gosh. Um, well, you know, first and foremost, we we do um, want to make sure our members have affordable access to health care, which uh, our vendor consultants. Uh, Helps us greatly with the program. So, we, uh, I think we have a three prong um, approach. One is affordable access to health care, two, a more preventative approach to health and worrying about our health before we become sick. Um, and we still have a lot of work to do on that. Um, and then, third, is our joining with this mission that Pat spoke about today. So, what you could break those up into even thirds. I think that humanitarian effort that we're involved in really trumps the other two, as important as they are. But it's, mind you, you know, it's it, it's incredibly important what we do and what fuels us. Um, you know, I just I wonder without that mission driving us, you know, where we would be at. What I've seen uh, relative to how Ash has grown is somewhat similar to some of the things Pat that you've talked about and. There's challenges along the way, and I really appreciate what you're saying, Mike, about you've got a duty first to your U.S.-based members. Absolutely. You have to create a health share program that benefits 
them so that they know their own needs are getting taken care of. And the challenge in that process is essentially you've you want you don't want to make sure Ash doesn't run out of funds or funds that members have contributed, of course. And so Ash sort of began as a supplemental health share program, and then you you, you you and the board have recently rolled out the summit program, and so now you've got more of a full blown catastrophic sharing type program, and and you kind of have to walk before you run a little bit, don't you? Yeah, we had to take that approach and start small, smaller with a limited sharing program. But was really excited when we were able to get to a level to uh, offer higher sharing levels. And uh, yeah, we, we did have to take it uh, one day at a time and go through the process, but we're really happy to be able to offer that to members now as you know, a really good option for a lot of people to access healthcare. I appreciate that, and it's uh, it's it's great spot for us to be in as the consultant to Ash, knowing that now we're bringing a higher level of sharing out there and feeling like there's some sustainability to the programs because ash grew a little by little and uh, now we're also driven by the mission of BAIC and crisis aid as well as knowing that the members here in the states are adequately provided for have adequate means for in the sharing uh, fund and is there anything that you you'd say to Pat as he goes out of here and the things that they're working on hearing what you've heard today? Gosh, uh, as uh, I think I'd just like to say again what an inspiration you are and that um, really started from the first moment I met you and was uh, confirmed when we took our trip to Ethiopia. But I would just say um, continue what you're doing. We're going to continue to do our part to grow and to be able to help continue fund incredible programs that you have over there so we're right by your side and we're and we're with you um so keep it up i know i know <laughs> like like you said some days are tough and, and we feel that too but if we uh lock arms hand in hand and continue to, to walk towards the darkness i think we can push it back yep. so keep it keep it up thank you you know and what you guys are doing is there's no you're providing affordable health care to people that probably wouldn't be having health care so just stop for a minute and think about how awesome that is. For me, from my side, it's like, wow. Like, I'm, like, how would I feel if I didn't have insurance? It'd be a scary thing. It'd be a really scary thing. But you're making it possible for people to have that insurance. So that's a big, big thing you're doing. So God bless you for yeah. doing that. Yeah, we don't take that, you know, we don't take that for granted to, yeah. for what we're able Good. to do there. Um, that's a big part, obviously, a big part of what we do. So how about you, Pat, as we get close to wrapping up here, you've got a book coming out. I got to keep pounding about this because you were nice enough to share at least an ex a small excerpt from it, and it is incredibly moving, uh, that one chapter. That chapter itself could, could drive a lot of uh, people emotionally in a way that illustrates how impactful it is what you're doing. Where are you with the book? And uh, Well, the book is at the editor. Whereas they're in the editing process, and so it's, it's like it's his problem now, not mine. <laughs> so I'm waiting for. I actually am waiting for them to get it back to us. So I can go through it back with the writer. Good. Well, we're looking forward <laughs> to that. Uh, as far as P any members listening here today, or anybody listening for that matter, uh, for those that would want to maybe get involved with Crisis Aid at a higher level beyond what we do with BAIC. How would they do that, Pat? Where would they find you? Um, crisisaid.org. 
Best place to find us on the internet. You don't want to give your cell phone number out or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No, uh, that's cool. So crisisaid.org, uh, wonderful organization. Pat, thank you for your connection. Thank you for the relationships you've built over in, in Ethiopia that connected ASH to VAIC. And Mike, thank you for what you're doing every day at ASH and uh, the, the challenges that, that you fight for uh, and on behalf of members so ASH can continue to do what it's doing Really appreciate both of you immensely, and uh, it's uh, a pleasure to sit down and get some updates from from both of you. So I just, you know, I want to thank you guys, Mike, Corey, and your members for everything you're making possible. It's the partnership with BAIC. We couldn't be doing the things we are if it were not for you. So thank you. You've saved many lives. Thank you, Pat. We're so happy to be a part of it, being able to do what we do. Gentlemen, thank you for the updates. Uh, let's plan on doing this again in the not-too-distant future. It's nice to hear what's going on, at least from the standpoint of knowing the impact that's, going, that's happening and how things are continuing to develop. It's not always comfortable to hear about because there's some hard things, and uh, it is certainly a, a large aspect of what drives us every day. So seeing the updates in the newsletter Mike provides and hearing from you, Pat, is uh, significant in my mind. So thank you for taking time out of your day. You're welcome. God bless you guys. I think it's fairly evident to most people listening that I have a great amount of admiration and respect for Pat Bradley and for Mike Hinchis. And I love being around people like them that dream big, that have a desire to help others. And the world certainly needs more of that. The work that's being done over in Ethiopia is extremely impactful. Lives are really being saved. And I wanted to circle back with both Pat and Mike together. I know they've grown to really have a great respect and admiration for each other as well. And uh, it's really, I think it's helpful to uh, convey what's going on over there because we don't see that every day. We don't, we don't read about it. You might see a little bit in the newsletter. And the things that are happening over there are really a direct result of your participation in ASH. And without your participation and the exponential impact that the dollar has over there now, 34, 35 to one, it really uh, increases the ability to help people to save lives over there. So thank you for your participation in ASH. Of course, it's not just about the people that are in Ethiopia. It's about expanding the work that ASH is able to do in the United States to make sharing more evident and more uh, increase the levels of sharing that are happening for members of the United States. And that continues to happen as ASH grows more and more. And so thank you for listening. Thank you for the heart that you have for the people over in Ethiopia. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to see ASH grow so that more and more needs are met in the United States and so that the impact continues to reach far and wide internationally. Look forward to being with you next time on Running Eyes.